in vet school, what do we learn? We learn from specialists, right? So when I feel something weird in the abdomen, then that's going to be blood work and an x-ray and an ultrasound. And that's what we learned and is considered the gold standard of care. Here's what you should be doing. The unfortunate piece is that what we learn in vet school is not the reality that so many clients face in private practice and they cannot afford the workup. So the question is, is the workup going to change? Can I provide relief for a pet in pain? Can I treat symptomatically and get to the same place? From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's episode of Blunt Dissection, we are doing something a little bit different. For the last six years, we have been, I have been interviewing people who are doing remarkable things in veterinary medicine. But I thought for this year, given what we've been through in the last three months, and given where my mind has taken me, is to explore new ways, new options, new models, new business thinking that's out there. Why? Well, that reason's pretty simple, because we are in what feels like an unsustainable moment. A moment where we are hemorrhaging talent of all kinds out of the profession. And this is against a backdrop of increased demand. Demand both in terms of quantity and availability of service, but also in terms of quality of service. Hemorrhaging talent in the face of increased stress that starts at university because the soaring costs of education are there, adding pressure in the undergraduate's life that simply did not exist for previous generations. And yet counterbalancing these things are the improvements, the vast improvements to quality of life. Working hours per week have never been lower and we now speak openly and freely and widely about the mental health issues that have confronted this profession for generations. But this also plays out against a backdrop of sweeping changes to the ownership structure of veterinary practice. Gone are the days of independent practices, it seems, as we move into the age of corporate medicine. The boardrooms of today's and tomorrow's practices are full now of shareholders, whose commitment is to the ongoing financial viability and profit of those businesses. And that's quite different to the commitment made in the boardrooms of veterinary practices for the generations before, where animal welfare was the primary driving factor, almost to a fault. So it's against this backdrop we explore what's going on in veterinary medicine and we look to the future, not the past, not the pain of the now but the innovation of tomorrow that might hold some keys and some answers. So for six episodes, well I'll try six, we'll see, I'm going to be exploring business models from around the world where people are thinking differently and challenging the status quo. So join me as we dive into the ideas from today that may be niche right now but one day might just change veterinary medicine for the better. Our first guest is Dr. Sarah Pisano. She works at Team Shelter USA, an organization who has transformed the way humane societies operate in the United States. Now working with the Open Door Veterinary Collective, she's turned her attention to improving access to veterinary care for as many people as possible. The Open Door Veterinary Collective operates two practices, doing things very, very differently, challenging the myth that people who can't afford veterinary care aren't worthy of veterinary care. There's a lot to dig into here, so let's crack on and get straight into the episode with the awesome Dr. Sarah Pisano. 
So welcome to today's episode of the show. We're going, as the intro has suggested there, in a slightly different direction. Often we focus on the person a lot. And since our person today has already been on Blunt Dissection and has been Blunt Dissected once before, there's not a lot of need to do that. If you are interested to learn more about the awesome Dr. Sarah Pisano, then go back and check out her episode. We'll link it up in the show notes. And we're not here to talk about Sarah too much. We'll probably talk a little bit about you, Sarah, today. But we're here to talk about this awesome thing in this series where we are exploring alternative business models and alternative thinking that can help us move the profession forward as we move bravely and boldly in the post-COVID world. So, Dr. Sarah Pisano, welcome back to the show. Episode round two. That's right. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And you just strap on your seatbelt because (laughs) this is going to blow your mind. So I've been itching to have this conversation since you got in touch with me to sort of explain this model. And I just, I thought, wow, this is making a lot of sense. So Sarah, before we get into the meat of the episode, I just want to set a little bit of background for people. So why am I doing this series on blunt dissection? Well, one, it's actually just a curiosity of mine to explore ways that the veterinary profession can evolve, grow, move forward, move with the times. Partly it's my own interest as an entrepreneur and business person to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on and out there. Partly it's because I respect greatly the work you've done in your career so far. It's just utterly mind boggling. And I think we need new ideas. We need critical thinking and interesting things happening. And I think that because, you know, we are moving, gosh, it's hard to say into a new, a new and different, a changeable phase. Cause like, hasn't been changeable or new or weird about the last three years. But we're moving into a phase now where we've been paying a lot of money to try and keep and stave off economic recession for years and years and years. Like since actually since the economic crisis, the Great Depression in 2008, 2009, we've been printing money. And that's in an effort to keep interest rates low and to keep money cheap so the economic wheels can keep grinding along. COVID, the amount of money that was printed to support people in COVID was enormous. And then we've got gas price rises, the most bonkers amount of economic uncertainty and the hikes in inflation rates, you know, up into double digits over here on this side of the pond, got pretty close to it. Are we at this, this top? Are we not? Don't know. But when my parents had a mortgage, their house was at 16%. And people don't think that is even possible. It's more than possible. And it's indeed, hopefully it's not probable. But there's a lot of economic uncertainty. And in those situations, can we rely on the same old, same old, same old? That's the kind of question people like me think about. And that's what keeps me awake at night. And my thought on that is, no, we can't. We're relying on this deluge of pets coming in. So I maybe want to start here, Sarah, before we dig into your the specifics of what we're talking about today. You know, COVID, we saw this gigantic uplift in pet ownership, which nobody can give me an actual accurate number for. Anyone who's tried, I actually don't believe because they're just not, they're incomplete data sets. Nobody actually can say, but practice, look at my own practice and speaking to practice owners all over the world, you know, that number could be anywhere from five to 20%. That was on top of an already stressed out veterinary system. And that was great for mental health support at home. But now people are back to work. Look at Elon Musk. Twitter are no longer doing home working and getting everyone back into offices. 
And you've got all these pets that weren't well socialized, that were sort of knee-jerk thoughts now going into shelters. Question one is actually, are you seeing that pressure happening there? And it, it does sort of pertain to what we're going to speak about next. Yes. But tell me what from your side, because you work in shelter medicine closely, is that something that's now sort of happening? And then the reason I ask is because I'm not totally sure we can rely on this uplift in pet ownership and all we've got this you know, great demand for veterinary services just now. Not totally convinced we can rely on that forever in the way that we might have thought that we we could with the world getting back to something a bit more normal. But with money being more expensive and harder to come by than ever before, pets are you know likely to be a you know on the painful end of of decision making there as a luxury item in many households. What's your experience of that or take on that thus far? At the beginning of COVID, we saw shelters that were not able to operate because of staff becoming ill or all those ramifications. We did a massive call out to our communities and said, can you adopt? Can you foster? And there was a gigantic outpouring and those numbers escalated. What also happened was we realized Shelters are not the place where people get pets overall and that we need to empower people to continue that cycle so pets don't come in the shelter. And when we look at 2022 data, we saw dramatic decreases in shelter intake since 2000 and the beginning of 2020 compared to 2019. And guess what? We're not even back up there. So we actually are not seeing droves of animals being surrendered. But because of economic instability, there is always a percentage of those animals that are surrendered because of lack of access to care. And I'm going to talk a great deal about that. But what we're seeing in the definitely in the last probably six, eight months is the numbers of animals going into shelters is not increasing. However, their lengths of day are increasing. Therefore, there's an overcapacity in shelters. So people are like, oh my gosh, there's more animals in shelters. There's not. It's just that that longer length of stay. And I think that is a result of the economic instability. I'm going to talk about that as well. And just in general, the financial straits of Americans having nothing to do with animals. This is a whole nother podcast, but you know, Americans don't appear to be uh, good financial planners. So even you, you have a financial fragility of even high income earners, people making over $100,000 a year considered financially fragile, which means the banking definition, they cannot come up with a $2,000 emergency veterinary bill and pay it off in a month. And these are, you know, 36% of high income earners, you know, so then you have that whole population of people that 45 million Americans are credit invisible, Dave. Doesn't mean they're bad. That could mean a retired person with a paid off mortgage and no credit cards, right? Because they're an older generation. And so you have this perfect storm of the cost to provide veterinary medicine escalating so much higher than inflation, along with, you know, the economic impact of the pandemic and now a recession and all of that, there's a high percentage, probably about a quarter of pet owners who are having problems just providing care for their pets. 
It is interesting. You look at that. I've just looked up the US Bureau of Labor Statistics and it, they've got a historical data on on the inflation rates, which certainly look like they sit around about three to four percent historically, but massive hikes, as you probably expect yeah. in 2022, up at 8.29%, not far off what the Federal Reserve or bank loan interest rate is. So mirroring that, but just consistently above that sort of two, 3% growth line and, and quite for many years, actually more than double it. So, you know, it's certainly the the buying power of the consumer versus the price of veterinary medicine has been going in the opposite direction, which is exactly pricing out. So that's a nice backdrop to move into. So, and actually, is there something very nice to hear about that people aren't just letting go of pets left, right and center as we move out of COVID? Interesting to see, and I'd love to check back in with you, or maybe you can let me know if you start seeing changes there. Yeah. Because that's got implications for our mental well-being as veterinarians, if we have to, we're the ones that have to yeah. deal with those and potential measures of, of healthy animals. But the backdrop, the at-risk population of people, that's a real jaw-dropper. You know, that phrase, the, the financially distressed and the lack of planning, i.e. overstretching yourself, buying the bigger house. If you've got $100,000 and you've got a bigger mortgage, is huge. You've got the fast car. You've got all this trappings of wealth. Actually, you're not that financially liquid. Then Exactly. Yeah. So, and then 60% of American workers live paycheck to paycheck. That to me, now mind you, these numbers too are from 2018, an access to care report from 2018. Imagine what these numbers are now. So I'm giving you lots of bad news, yes. but I'm going to now like, let's dive into it. Okay. All let's right. Let's dive into the good news. Before we go into the good news, Sarah, I think there's one other thing and I I heard Marty Becker say it. So this is not, I would love for you to, if you had a number on this, I don't have a number. I haven't been able to find, but he said roughly half of Americans cannot afford access to veterinary healthcare. Do you have a number that would either be accurate on that or could corroborate that in some ways to how many people are we leaving? You know, there's 45 million Americans invisible to credit. How many are inaccessible to veterinary healthcare at this point in time. Do you have an idea of that number? Yeah, I mean, from that 2018 access to care report, which is pre-pandemic, so I think this is higher, you know, uh, 25% of pet owners had access to care issues within that previous two years. So I can only imagine that that's higher, but again, it's much deeper and much more serious than just people who are perhaps living below the poverty level. So it's a significant number of people, but I think that the private practice veterinary industry has essentially been designed as a retail operation. And so you pay as you go. And what we know is that a lot of people can pay, but they have to pay over time. And you wanna talk about millennials? They want to pay on their phone, right? Like you have to have these different options for them. They are the highest, you know, out of that 60%, they make up the greatest nut percent of, you know, and I feel so sorry for these younger generations facing this financial state of their cost of living compared to what they're able to generate in income. So 
People demand, it's 2022, going on 2023. People demand alternative payment plans. So to me, that's the basis of the issue. And five, six years ago, the founders of the open door business model said, you know what? We have private practices complaining that as nonprofits, we're competing with them to provide veterinary care. So you know what? We're going to create a model that's a for-profit veterinary clinic, and we're going to prove that you, I get chills even thinking about this, like this was that they set out to do this and it's worked bigger and better than anybody ever anticipated. So the founders of the open door model set out to prove that you could have a for-profit, sustainable, and actually more profitable practice and enhance access to care with this model. And so here's the premise. So the first part of our conversation was about, for example, 45 million people being credit invisible. The bottom line is we need to dissociate the traditional credit score rating with how we help people with financial support options. So basically, I want you to think of a pie and the clinic will get paid. Now in our two clinics, we're on track to net profit higher than a traditional private practice of 15 to 20%. That's with three doctors. Can I just say, most practices don't get anywhere near 15 to 20%. That's considered top of the pie. That's the benchmark, yeah. No, no, no. 15 to 20% is exceptional performance. Yeah. It's not common. Okay. Even better. So our expectation is with a three-doctor practice, Monday through Friday, no emergencies. The net is between 15 and 20, but we know we can exceed that or probably exceeding that already in Toledo. So these two test hospitals were open, and the idea of a payment plan, most veterinarians just run for the hills because they don't want to be collectors. They don't want to take the time to collect money. And they've had poor luck with that, with payment plans. But there is the one example of a company that we work for is vetbilling.com. They not only work in the veterinary industry, but in across medical fields. And it's a way to outsource payment plans. Okay, so let's talk about the pie. The client is coming to my clinic most of our clients are paying in full as they go. Mm-hmm. But then there are clients that say, I'll give you a perfect example. When people feel there's perceived access to care issue, what are they going to do? They're going to try to treat the ear infection on their own. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. So I occasionally do per diem in our Asheville clinic. I saw a German Shepherd with purulent otitis. You couldn't touch his ears didn't have the money to come. So she let it go till it was now so critically painful. I said, just ear packs, Rimadyl, antibiotic, you know, just the basic pain relief and treatment of the infection is $150 that you would owe the clinic. And she said, I have $45 today and that's it. I said, you know what? No problem. You're not going to leave this clinic until your dog has what he needs to be comfortable. Now we're going to look at spectrum of care. The bill would be, it was $150. 
So that person chipped in the $45. We have a stay together fund, which is a dollar per visit that gets put into this fund. There was a nonprofit piece to it. So can I ask, that's a commitment by the practice. Every client that comes in, every appointment, the practice will put a dollar into a, a fund of their own set aside for moments like this. Exactly. That's one piece of how the clinic would help. But the bottom, I think that the biggest and what I want to talk to today is the research. Veterinarians are so averse to payment plans, but we recently, one of our colleagues at Open Door, Heather Camisa, was a co-author with Samantha Hill on this Frontiers article. They looked at more than 20,000 records. So these are not projections or simulations. They looked at these records and with through vet billing, there was between a 91 and a 94% repayment rate. That's the message for veterinarians. Outsource these payment options for people and dissociate the rating for to approve people from the traditional. So vet billing does the soft credit checks. And again, many people can pay, Dave, they just can't pay over, you know, they have to pay overtime. And so in a retail model, that's not what's been happening. The other interesting thing that's happened is we work with a clinic in Pennsylvania who, again, dentals, right? Dentals, once the teeth need to be extracted, now those dental costs are going to be even higher than a regular prophylaxis. So one of our practices said, you know what, we're going to allow people to prepay a dental. We know that dog or cat is going to need a dental cleaning in six months. They can prepay into almost like a dental savings plan. They increase their dentals by 30% by using it either proactively or after the fact. But the Frontiers article is so significant because it provides the confidence for veterinarians, right? Like, listen, outsource it, take it off your plate. You are getting pressure from nonprofits, from rescue groups, from people who can't afford, please discount my services. Well, that's out of your bottom line. So say you're discounting 10%, 15%, giving things away. We're talking about now your net, your 91 to 94% repayment rate. It's a smaller amount. But here's the cool thing. It's a money multiplier. So when we do that, for example, and we this model works with for-profit hospitals or nonprofit, the same exact way. And just to go back about the open door model, this financial support options are a piece of it, but it's also spectrum of care, right? This is what we've done all over the world. Veterinarians do this, Dave. But yet there is a shame for veterinarians, if I don't recommend the CAT scan and the MRI for a dog who's seizuring, right? There's this shame that we have to recommend the gold standard. And it's not a practical approach for a lot of pet owners. We need to remove the shame between each other as well. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more just as a term, because some people won't be familiar with the spectrum of care as a phrase. So could you dig into that a little bit more and just explain what you mean by spectrum of care? In vet school, what do we learn? We learn from specialists, right? 
So when I feel something weird in the abdomen, then that's going to be blood work and an x-ray and an ultrasound. And that's what we learned and is considered the gold standard of care. Here's what you should be doing. The unfortunate piece is that what we learn in vet school is not the reality that so many clients face in private practice and they cannot afford the workup. So the question is, is the workup going to change? Can I provide relief for a pet in pain? Can I treat symptomatically and get to the same place? Is the diagnostic going to change what I'm going to do? Like, is it going to hurt the pet to treat without that particular test? So spectrum of care means if I have a vomiting dog with a normal abdominal palpation and no temperature, no fever, and feeling great, bouncing off the walls, I feel pretty confident that I can NPO the dog, give him a shot of Serenia, sub-Q fluids, right? So this spectrum of care means I'm going to start with the simplest and the most common thing. And we all know that's going to be dietary indiscretion, and we're never going to know what the heck he's vomiting for, right? But we feel that veterinarians, as a general rule, have been judgmental of one another. So if you didn't do that workup, then that's a bad thing. Um, And so I think we have a fear of that shame. The spectrum means I'm just going to try the simplest things first. The gold standard is not always available for that person for a variety of reasons. What might some of those reasons be? You know, and when we're running, you know, you're running consults, you're running behind, you know, sometimes these things are hard to bring to mind. So in your wealth of experience, what do you consider acceptable reasons? You see, I've laced that for not going for a gold standard of care. Number one is I can't, I don't have that money to pay right now. My credit card is maxed. Something like care credit, there's companies that are predatory lenders. You're going to pay 26% interest on that. So with a company that's outsourcing payment plans like vet billing or other ones that we recommend, then we, and all of this is on opendoorconsults.org, there's no interest. So there is a monthly, you know, it's some three or $5 a month, $25 to do the payment plan, but that takes away that piece of it. But what are some other reasons or things people can't do? Maybe I can't pill my pet. Maybe I have some sort of a physical disability and you're asking me to do a treatment that I can't do, or you're asking me to recheck every three days and I don't have a car or I need to depend on somebody else to bring me. There are a whole host of reasons, you know, I'm caring for a sick or elderly person or a sick child that's You know, there's all kinds of reasons that treatment or adherence to what our recommendations is not practical for people. And so along with removing the shame across our industry, we need to ask people and work with people, hey, does this sound like a good plan for you? Because we've shamed people into that. And I know I'm guilty of it too. Like I got to check myself like, what do you mean you're not going to do that in my head? You know, what do you mean you're not going to do the x-ray and the abdominal ultrasound? You know, 
we need to remove the shame for people as well, for our clients and be sensitive and work with them more like partners. And then this is the only way. And we want that relationship to be the standard, not like it's our way or the highway. It's the gold standard or nothing. That is not practical. And it's not good for our relationships, our bottom lines, our reputations as veterinarians. So how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point where there is this shame, there is this pressure? I mean, I'm I'm looking at, and I'm going to play slightly devil's advocate here because this, yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate, but let me just say, I fully agree with what you're saying. And I think spectrum of care, personally, I always try for the best that the medicine can deliver, but I'm perfectly happy to do the dance with what my boss, the client, who's my real boss, can actually work with for all those reasons and more. But there's terrific pressure, real or imagined, for our colleagues and particularly younger colleagues. You've identified one, pressure at universities to do this gold standard. Pressure from the fear of litigation, if something does go wrong. But there's also pressure from practices with standards of care. Now, you know, I've spoken about and think standards of care are a helpful set of guidelines, but this feels a little bit in uh, opposition to that. Okay. Because that's the sort of thought that will be in the head of a practitioner. But what if I get sued? What if my boss yells at me because I I didn't do the standard of care? Like that's where some of the pressure comes from to make money. And paying really high multiples for practices puts a lot of financial pressure on owners. Interesting. So, yes, the fear of litigation is obviously a real fear. And that's a simple solution. And if you ever listen to an attorney speak to veterinarians, they are in your face about documentation. Documentation, documentation, documentation. So I recommended the x-ray, owner declined. And I discussed that giving steroids may end up blah, blah, blah. So I document, and that's how I prevent that litigation. I strongly feel that this model and what the Frontiers article proves is that when we provide these financial support options, we're going to net profit more in our private practice clinics. We're going to multiply, amplify the money that we can make. And let's not forget how many clients you're going to keep if you shame them into doing a gold standard and or nothing, they're going to leave. They're going to badmouth you on social media. To me, that's what I'm afraid of. You're going to badmouth me because I have been so tied. You know, unfortunately, our work is intimately tied to a dollar, intimately. And so it's an emotional and sensitive relationships that we're dealing with, but yet we have to make money doing it. And it's it's just such a difficult dance for veterinarians. For us at Open Door, this is the model that relieves that because it focuses on recommendation. I'm going to have those conversations with my clients about gold standard, see what they can do. And guess what, Dave? If I have to have that x-ray, this is the point where the model proves itself. Okay. I say, listen, we have to have the x-ray. They say, I got 40 bucks. That's it. Okay, can you pay over time? Can you do, here's the x-rays, you know, whatever it is, $200. Yes, I could pay over time or perhaps 
I can pay a little bit over time, but not the whole thing. Now let's look at these other options we have for you. I am not asking veterinarians, we are not asking veterinarians to be fundraisers. That's not what this is about. This is a pie. The clinic will get paid. It's just a way for clinics to organize themselves to support their clients so that their recommendations can be followed. Now, before we get on with the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor. Introducing the Vet Career Concierge Service. It's an easy way to find your dream job and it's a brilliantly simple concept. Instead of wasting time searching through thousands of practice jobs that might be a good fit but frequently aren't, let the Vet Career Concierge do the hard work. All you have to do is register, tell us all about your skills and what you're looking for from your next practice, then your Career Concierge goes to work filtering, matching and approaching only practices who are a good fit. If you like the sound of a practice you want to meet, your concierge will coach you through the interview process, help with negotiations and work to ensure you have a smooth transition into practice when you accept a role. They'll even stay in touch with scheduled career check-ins to make sure you're happy. The service is open to vets and vet nurses with at least one year in practice and legally able to work in the US, Canada, UK, EU or Australia. To register, visit vetxinternational.com forward slash jobs and all registrants will be entered into a prize draw where you could win an Apple Watch, Magnum of Champagne or one of several Amazon gift cards. Registration and membership is free for vets and nurses, so head to vetxinternational.com forward slash jobs to sign up today now back to the show okay so a couple more questions and i'm going to put the business hat on now rather than the and sure. i want to poke the idea interrogate the idea a little yes. bit so profit and cash flow aren't the same thing and you can have a very profitable practice but if there's no cash flowing in it then you have a problem in your practice have you experienced any impacts on cash flow that have caused issues as a result of using this system? That is such a good question. And the answer is no, because there's more parts to the model that we haven't touched on yet. And one is the efficient use of staff. We rely heavily on our technicians. There's lots of tech appointments, right? So we can have lots of clients in and out that increases our bottom line. Efficiency of scheduling, how long are we scheduling appointments for? If they're wellness versus sick, are we doing drop-offs? I know when I work, I want to double book because you know what? I don't know about your practice, Dave, but holy cow, people are late and people don't show up even if I send a, a limousine for them. It's unbelievable to me. You know, when you have people crying that we can't schedule an appointment for a week and then people don't show up or they're late. So you want to look at that. It's a low overhead. It's capitalizing on an online pharmacy. It's keeping the overhead low in your clinic for what you need to get out. It's giving people an option of an auto ship. Here's a perfect example. In our southern states, heartworm disease is very serious. We want dogs on heartworm disease every month, and we want them on flea and tick control every month. That's a lot of added up to buy a year's supply. It's hundreds of dollars. So you know what? I could do one heartworm pill and for whatever it is, five or $10 and have it auto-shipped. Yes, I can do that. It's looking at all these different pieces together. Then here's the other thing, and I, I think we talked about this before, is private practices are losing around 60,000 US dollars a year just because they're not paying attention. There's mischarges, there's undercharges, there, 
all of those things. So it is attention to the finances every single month, being very critical of what happened. So there's just a whole host of other parts to this model besides just the payment plan, but that is a giant part of it. I know that in our clinics too, people come to us because we have payment plans and they're like, oh, well, wait a second, then I didn't even need the payment plan. But we get clients and we keep clients and I'm not insinuating in today's market. I know vets, if you say, do you know, see more clients, Right. this is going to help your current clients, your current clients that are leaving out the door without care because they couldn't afford it. This is increasing your bottom line. You know, you, if you didn't even take another new client this year, this will increase your bottom line. Does that make sense? I like when you play devil's advocate because it reminds me to tell you seriously about this model that I believe has to be the future of the veterinary practice industry. I don't see it going any other way. Okay. So I think there's so much more to expand out this conversation into. It's exactly what the show is about, you know, because payment plans on their own are, or this model is interesting. So I want to come back to the, and we're going to get to the pie and how the pie thing works because we've not really dug into that yet. And that to me is a very, very fascinating part of this. Yes. But I would like to sort of quiz you on efficiency as a word, such an important word. Sustainability might be another important word. And you also mentioned online pharmacy there. Now, these are controversial topics because that's right. Technicians for a lot of no money, they're almost harder to get hold of than doctors right now. And so doctor technician ratios are, you know, in some practices in full reverse where you've got too many doctors, not enough technicians or not enough doctors and even fewer technicians, which is horrible, horrible for practice efficiency. But what in your practices, what efficiencies have you got tips? If you had sort of maybe three tips on the best uses of or are the best ways to be efficient in practice, what would your message be on that? This is my favorite topic because apparently I have a reputation for being exceptionally efficient. However many tips you want. If you look at my gross per day, I am always exponentially higher than other doctors that I work with. So I'm going to tell you things that work for me and things that we do in our clinic. But I'm going to say it again. It's shocking to me after having such difficulty for clients to even get an appointment that people are late or no-shows and that you have to plan for no-shows because it's a fact of life. Even if you sent the texts, the emails, the phone calls, you spoke to them, it's a fact of life. For me, I want to be overbooked and I know people are like, oh, but oh, that's going to, I mean, I mean, I had, I'll tell you what happened recently at our clinic. It was myself and another veterinarian and we were both booked and the veterinarian had to call out sick. I think she had COVID at the time. And so I said to the staff, listen, just let's set the expectations and say, we're going to work so hard to try to see everybody on time, but please give us grace. Guess what, Dave? I watched that clock like a hawk. Nobody waited. So I had four rooms most of the day. So my texts went in. They did the histories. If the dog is healthy and there's no issues, pull the heartworm test. Get the heartworm test running because it's going to take 10 minutes. I don't want to get in there after 
15 minutes of the client being in there and then you pull the heartworm test and now we're going to wait 10 minutes and keep that room Over no we're going to like you know like yes we send out our fecals again if it's going to be booster vaccinations things that technicians can do suture removals those are tech appointments i love to have I mean, in our clinic, no, I mean, we're struggling to find veterinarians and technicians at both our clinics for sure. But on the days that I usually have two technicians with me. So on that particular day, remember, I had three, you know, or four when that veterinarian called in sick. But the other thing is, let's go with efficiency. So obviously, the reminders, which most people are doing anyway, drop offs, I don't think that a lot of practices capitalize on drop-off enough. I love that because I don't want to have downtime. If I have downtime, then I can just run, do the physical. Most of the time I could do the physical myself. And then I can just say to the tech, here's what I need you to do. So I think drop-offs are a really efficient way to work as well. Our clinics are small. So unfortunately we can't do tons of them, especially on a surgery day. The other thing about our practices, again, the the model, it could be for one doctor, two doctor, three doctors, but if there's three doctors, it's two doctors in rooms and one doctor in surgery. Mm -hmm. That's typical, but we are short staffed, so we don't have three doctors at the moment. We're using a combination of per diems and full-time veterinarians. Let's see what else, depending on your state, virtual rechecks are super important. We use a great computer software. We use the IDEX Neo. So it's really important to communicate with one another and with clients so that I don't have time to talk to 30 clients a day. But again, in between, I can look at those notes, those phone calls and answer the tech or get straight back to the client via text or an email. So those are some of the biggies. If it is, but for me, it's about How can I get clients in and out? And maybe that means, okay, this was going to be, this was a sick appointment, but it's going to take longer. So can you leave them for just an hour or two and come back? Otherwise, I'm going to take up a room and now I'll have someone else waiting, right? So those are just some things that I'm thinking about. What could I do? Also, we want to get a sense. It's on our website about these financial support options. We, at our clinic, we need to be prepared for that ahead of time because we need you to look at these different options. Like if your pet is sick, so we want, that's on our website. That might be a conversation. Like you're pre-warming them up with email or with communication prior to coming in. Hey Dave, listen, do you want to hear about our financial support options? No, I'm good. I'll just see how it rolls. Or yeah, I do. Okay, well, do you have access to our website, you can look at that, or when you get here, we'll give you a handout, but just know that we wanna work with you if there's issues with providing care for your pet. Sarah, when you ask a question like that, one of the things that pops in my head is you're sort of almost priming the pump for people to take advantage of you. Have you found, <laughs> or is there a way of measuring you know, people who would have claimed or not? It feels like we're not really looking at the people who would have claimed this because they're not accessing care. Yeah. Or they're going away and not following our recommendations and disappearing or lost to follow up kind of thing. But it feels like that's inviting trouble. That's a great question. So if you asked me this question five years ago, I would say, you have to means test everybody. 
What we find now is what we need to do is release judgment. And we don't know what's happening in people's life. And remind you, this isn't charity. This is a payment plan. They're paying. But if somebody does say that I have $40, they're crying. They told us that their child is, you know, terminally ill. We're not going to make you prove those things. We're going to trust that people are not going to take advantage of this. And to be honest with you, we haven't had to be suspect. And the other thing that the found our founder, Amy St. The brilliant Amy St. Arnaud says is you don't know what people are going through. So just because they drove up in the Mercedes, you don't know that their relative just passed away and left them the Mercedes and they're living in the Mercedes. Like you don't know what's going on. So stop making up stories and stop trying to shame people. And let's just figure out how to provide care and help people provide care so that we're not suffering, right? I mean, compassion fatigue wise, there is no way I could have slept that night if I let that German shepherd with the purulent ears leave that clinic with no care. I would not have been able to do it. That's the compassion fatigue bit, isn't it? That you're, it, that's what it makes it hurt. Absolutely. Like if, what's a pet owner say? Like if you really cared. Yeah, you exactly. And if you ask veterinarians, I think you're going to say, what is your stress that my clients can't pay for what I'm recommending? That's my stress. Like, amongst a whole host of other things now. But why don't we take the shame out of that financial conversation? Why don't we, you know, as veterinarians, I don't know about you, Dave, but in vet school, I don't remember anybody telling me veterinary medicine cost anything. We never got an education about the cost and a client might not be able to afford it. I didn't get that education as so many of us don't. And, you know, so we're just like deers in a headlight. Oh, we don't want to talk about people who don't have enough money or we don't want to ask them about money. We don't want to bring that up. It's uncomfortable. Well, you know what? It's the reality of our business. And I feel like this model and is the Frontiers article is such a great proof that this model is what we need to relieve that, remove the shame within our industry and with our clients. It's funny you say that, you know, we're not taught that or we're primed that it's you know, to be cheap or to expect clients to rebel against us. But we're really not taught much of a financial education at all. And I suppose I, I consider it fortunate. I worked in very good quality practices with the most expensive locally and, and for the first decade of my career, but in two of the most deprived bits of the United Kingdom, one in Newcastle where it used to be an old mining town and they all got shut down as huge unemployment, and the other in southeast London in a, you know, not so plush bit of southeast london so there was always compromise you, you had to work on a spectrum of care right. and, dead, and the right. animals were dead and the number of times you, you, you know you sort of thought oh god i really don't want to give that animal a shot of and it wasn't serenia then it was you know it was like oh, i'm not even sure i want to give it metoclopramide or anything like right. that right right yeah. but the clients could do nothing more and that was it they were rough they were ready and it was do this or or nothing. So you, you got used to, oh, actually that animal was okay. And it, it was just gastritis. So you kind of, your spider sense got tuned. But okay, so if I'm hearing you right, this model is much more than a payment plan. You're working on the levers, and I've spoken about these levers before, but you know, efficiency to improve the 
profitability or the cash availability in your business. My guess is you're working on communication with pet owners so they effectively understand recommendations and have, and they say yes more, one of my favorite subjects. My guess is you're also looking at accurate billing and capturing of lost charges and debt management, all of which offers you the opportunity to put together a slice of the pie from the practice. But that flows nicely into the pie of, okay, We've got the pet owner in the exam room. Let's say it's a dental. Let's say it's an $800 dental. There's, you know, there's a few extractions needing doing. This animal is in pain. And you know, these are the ones that have hurt my heart as a dentist. There's my interest in dentistry when they would say no. And I'm like, your animal is it's dripping. Us. It's in yes. agony, yes. Oh, but he's still eating. Or the ones that get it and they can't do it. How does the pie work then? You alluded to it a little bit. I'd love for you to go into a bit more detail. So the client has a $100 they can afford. How do we make up the shortfall? So Because this, this isn't just about, this isn't a, an advertorial for vet billing. That's not why I wanted to talk to you on this. How else right. is put together? Yeah. So if you ask the best questions, I think you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> No, that is sincerely, again, this is a perfect question because I didn't bring it up yet. This model is for clients who can pay something. If somebody comes in and the pet needs an $800 dental and they have $20, those are clients we have to refer to a nonprofit. And we want those reserved for another pathway because we're not a charity. This is a business model to be profitable and sustainable. But it turns out that the number of those people is so much smaller, right? When we give people the financial support options that I discuss, which in Asheville, we have two pages front and back handout of all these different options that range from maybe an old dog foundation grant or, like I said, the nonprofit part of it. So for those people who cannot afford anything, then no, that is not, we cannot pay the entire pie. We cannot pay the entire All pie. Right. Yep. Tell me about the pie. Like, so it's these two pages I want to know about. Because like, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so how do you get access to an old dog foundation grant when you've got clients coming out the wazoo at you? Like whose job is that? The clients, the client's job. So the thing is, Again, it's going to depend on the situation. So I'll tell you, I had a little dog, ate the stuffing out of the mattress. So we were like, uh uh, like, are we going to have to cut? Are we not going to have to cut one of those things? And so there's times that we have to intervene and make phone calls to get that funding. But if it's a life threatening emergency, we're going to figure out the funding afterwards. And that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. But Having said that, the cost of what needs to be done is the responsibility of the owner and we give them that information. But again, the Stay Together Fund is at the discretion of the veterinarian. So each vet has a little pot of money from that Stay Together Fund. So that's one example. That's one piece. It could be one piece of the pie. And how awesome is that for a veterinarian to have that money, right? Like, that's what we all want. Like, I want a little money that I could help this particular, but again, that could be a slice of the pie. How much does every veterinarian have to play with in a month from a state? That varies. 
that varies because it depends how many doctors there are, it depends how much is in the fund, all of those things. That's a variable. And then it really, like I said, it's up to the veterinarian when or how they use that, which I think, whew, what a nice gift for a veterinarian to have, right? Uh, most veterinarians don't have that leeway, right? Yeah. How impactful for a pet owner to get access to that and what are they going to say about you on the review then? When we look at our the trust in this profession, has it's not low, but it's not what it was. And over time, it has diminished as, I think, partly, you know, partly that's the price, that's an inflationary pressure. Yeah. It's unfortunate. And I think you're right. It's very sad. And I'll tell you that, so there's an emergency clinic in 2022 that uh, a dog was, I, I think it was um, acute abdomen, whatever the bill was. I'm, you know, I'm probably misquote, but it was maybe eight or $10,000. They said, we can't do it. They ended up having the dog surrendered to a rescue group and they're this, that, and the other thing, but the owner didn't get the dog back. Ultimately, this practice has had death threats, has had their social media against this practice was so bad that somebody turned, when you Google their name, it led you to a casket company. This was, how do you think those veterinarians felt? Do you think, I mean, right. And so we actually reached out to this practice and said, we need to talk to you about the open door model, Dave. That could have been avoided. So on top of the heartache of everything about that story from day one, my dog is suffering. Everything about it is devastating for the owner and the veterinary team. That all could have been prevented if the open door model was in place. Completely. Or mitigated. Yes. Okay, so the pie comes from whatever the client can contribute. Is there a minimum percentage that where you think, okay, this client's actually, we can play ball here? That's pretty much case by case. But I also want to reiterate over and over, most clients pay their bill in full when they leave. Most yeah. people. So you would think, oh my God. And like I said, we attract clients because they know about our financial support options that they may never use, but they like it. And they like that we have that for other people. So you're getting people over the threshold because they're not fearful of being judged. They're or less fearful. They're thinking, well, there, there is an option. So let me just go and explore it. It's not going to be a straight yeah. no. And now you might shoot for the best, but you invoke spectrum of care you work to okay what's reasonable given the clinical circumstances and the family circumstances before us what is our spectrum of care what is goal care for this situation this individual situation which is nothing like goal care from a university point of view but it can work and then we can discuss the plan and how much that costs and a lot of the time they just say actually that's affordable for me i'll do that or you can then say well there's a contribution here are your other options you can explore. And then if it's a non-emergent such situation, you can schedule that once they've gotten the funding options in place and can come to you. And you've pre, not pre-authorized, but you've got enough of a relationship with people on this list that you trust that they'll make their payment therefore. And a part of that is the vet billing thing where they can have you know, a very low cost of, of funding to make payments down as well. Right. Not fine. We're not giving them funding. It's just a payment plan. And to talk, to speak to your point earlier about cash flow, like I said, we don't have those issues because it's just most people are paying 
in full, right? And we don't have to discount like so many veterinarians are pressured to do. Yeah, that's horrible. Right, it's, it's horrible, yeah. Sarah, can I ask you, in your typical case, how many sectors in the pie are there? I'm just thinking for the poor receptionist, the hardest job in the practice, whose job is it to then, if the client says, yes, I've got the, you know, this foundation will support here, I'd like to do vet billing and payment plan here, and I can make a contribution here. You know, that's not unmanageable. But if there's multiple sources, like what's the administrative burden that comes from this? So that's a great question. But again, that's why we want to prep clients. So if you're on the website for our clinic, you're going to say, hey, do you think you might need financial support options? And then we also hear clues, okay? Dave, I don't say... I don't have the money. I don't have, can't do all the vaccines today because I can't afford it. Or I don't have that $200 or what you recommend. Often people don't say that. They say things like, oh, my car broke down. It was really expensive. I stay at home with an elderly child. I have cancer. I'm on chemo. People say clues. Why? Because it's shame. they feel shame. They don't want to come out and say they can't afford what's best for their pet. But they give clues. So we train our staff to listen to all these different clues so we can say, hey, and then in the room, there's posters that say, hey, do you need financial support options? So when the clients, let's just say it's an annual, right? So it's physical, vaccines, heart room, whatever. So when the tech goes in, they populate the basics and say, okay, so we're at $175 today. Is that doable for you today? Why? No, it's not. You know, what can I do? Well, here's the handout. All of the things, what we try really hard to do, and I think we've, we've, you know, all these things evolve, right? With technology is you can do this online, you know, on your phone, on your smartphone, like right in the room or what have you. The staff is not responsible to do everything. We can't, right? Like the answer on the phone's off the hook. So that burden of payment is on the client and then we're going to help them along the way if we need to but again it's about communication and that's why we have that handout and when you said you you were interested in that handout it's going to look different for any practice in any every single practice is going to look different because different regions have different sort of foundations or you know nonprofits or things like that a perfect example in Toledo we get a free social worker. It's a graduate student in social work. And so that's part of our practice is this graduate social worker who helps our staff with compassion fatigue and who helps clients when they have to deal with not just financial, but all these other pieces, right? And so, gosh, you know, I can talk forever. I'm already like down this rabbit hole and I'm like, I don't even know where we started <laughs> Well, it's really the, administ- the administrative. Oh, the administrative. That's right. Yeah. Administrative. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's bad when I have to remember where we started in a bit of a oh, Right, right. I'm amazed. Okay. I even where, where did we go down that rabbit hole? So administratively, right, we are introducing this idea when we hear clues or when the tech is in the room and the client goes, I can't do that today. The vet and the tech work together to prioritize. For example... If it's an eight-year-old dog and it's June, I'm going to make sure they have their rabies vaccination and they have a heartworm pill. That's your minimum. So we have to work together, the vet and the tech, 
and the client, what do we need to prioritize today? Your parvo vaccine is not important in an eight-year-old healthy, right, at this time. So it's important for all of us, the client, the tech, and the vet to work together. And I think for so long, we just leave the client out of it. This is what you need to do. And if you know what, you're going to annoy me if you don't do what I say. <laughs> so prioritizing care is part of that spectrum. Okay, so... Gosh, there are just tons of questions. And so, I mean, this is almost as much of an ethos as it is a system in some ways. You know, this is is a very, it's a holistic sort of approach to looking at where you can improve your business practices. But, and in some ways, and and I wonder, and this is, and you're going to have to forgive me being the ministry of asking really dumb questions here. The bit that I'm then thinking of is so that, and again, I'm, I'm using a name, I don't usually plug companies or organizations and I'm being paid nothing at all to talk about this just for full disclosure Uh, this is pure curiosity but vet billing for example so they're just a piece of that pie then right you know the, the, the research there is the value of the research in the awareness of gosh actually most people who are not able who get onto plans will pay or is that also, hey, this is actually a pretty important part of the system is having the payment plan. That's the only bit that's a little bit fuzzy for me. And just one question on the research, because one of the things I, I wondered was, is this research done on people who, because you're advocating the, inv- the credit invisible people, are these guys people who were credit visible and therefore the repayment rates are to be expected to be better because they've been credit scored already, for example? So those are two slightly separate questions, but I was just, I was Let's curious. Start there. And then I was interested in just clarifying the role of vet billing in this. And that's, if you've got those for me, then I've got, I feel like I've got a, a good full picture of what the Open Door Vet Collective is doing and working on. There's a lot to unpack there. So, sorry. okay. To me, this research is so crucial because it provides veterinarians with the confidence that you can outsource payment plan. Don't worry about it. You don't have to be a collection agency and you're going to increase your net profit. Period. End of story. For private practices, that's the message. Between 91 and 94% are going to get repaid. Now, disclaimers about the research, and I hope everybody reads this article. Again, we'll link it was to it. looking at... Six, yeah, six year, over six years, 21,000 vet billing records, 397 clinics, most of which were just small animal practices, okay, over 83%. So these were looked, the authors were looking at those people who would have been denied credit when a soft credit rating was done. The research was geared towards that. It wasn't to find all those people who didn't get care or who did economic euthanasia, like that, we need more research, right? But that was the focus and the goal and why I'm so thrilled that this bubbled up at the repayment rates, because that means if I'm discounting 15%, I'm losing 15%. If I'm, I got a 91, I just, I increased my net profit. So again, with the multiplier, your net profit is exponential of that, right? Of that, that what you potentially could have lost. So to me, 
I sit here and scratch my head and think, if I was a private practice owner, what's the downside of the whole model? There's no downside. (laughs) To me, my company is Team Shelter USA. I do shelter consults. When Open Door started, I said, I want to be on that team because I want to be part of that because I believe it has to be part of the fabric of the veterinary industry. I don't see this going any other way, Dave. I mean, this disparity between the escalation in the cost to provide veterinary services and, you know, making people pay a retail model is just going to get us further and further away from what animals and people need. And if our, as an industry, our approval ratings are dropping, I can see that. But this, there's just no downside to this model. No, it's certainly at a time when you think client trust in veterinary practices is decreased. Veterinary enjoyment of the job of veterinary medicine is waning. There has to be solutions in different ways of doing things. Yeah. Money is a big factor in that whole conversation. Vets hate talking about money, asking for money, attaching money as a value quantum uh, to their to their service so this kind of helps and i guess it, it you can pick and mix what things you put into the mix of things you're willing to make up your pie with whether it's a vet care foundation or a you know i don't want to let you off the hook just yet but with the vet billing bit so that's just a bit of the puzzle that's the enabler of the payment plan actually happen whatever you agree correct and that might be all of your pie. if somebody can pay 200 dollars, it might yeah. just be all of the pie sure and yeah Absolutely. I want to put it, so Heather Camisa has education as an economist, so she's super brilliant, and she's a co-author of this paper with Samantha Hill, but I like um, how they distilled it so a person like me who's not an economist can explain, understand, and explain the model. So the money multiplier, so let's just pretend that I'm self-insuring essentially, right? Say $10,000 that I would have otherwise lost. If I do that, what this research showed is the money multiplier is 14.5. So now I have $145,000 worth of care netted out that 10. I have 135,000 new dollars that I didn't have before. It doesn't matter if it's a nonprofit or for-profit. If a, say a foundation wants to fund access to care for a nonprofit clinic, I'm going to give $100,000. The multiplier is 14.5. That means my donation of $100,000 provided real care, $1.45 million of real care. This is not just math. This is not, you know, in the ethos or speculation. It's a money multiplier. You've lost me a bit there. I don't quite, I'm not totally understanding how that multiplier works. So first of all, it's when we dissociate, we're not funding, we're providing options for those people who would have otherwise been denied and not get care, right? Yeah. Are you basically saying that if you provide X amount, the payment plan actually will enable the 14.5 multiplier by 
offering a small chunk of funding support enable somebody to get into the payment plan or in your practice and actually make that payment? Because so the money has to be real. Right. Not funding support. I'm saying you're losing less, right? So if I discount 15 or 20%, I'm losing 15 oh, I- or 20%. Yeah. But you're not losing. So you don't need to discount when you have these financial support options. Yeah. Yeah. There's no need to discount. Yeah. Right. And that, that multiplier probably comes from the amount of profit that, let's say, f- for every, if you discount something and it would have been 10,000 and you discount 10% off it was 1,000, you probably just discounted the entire value of that operation. Right. And you're going to have to make, if you've got a 10% net profit practice, you have to bill another 10,000 to make that 1,000 back. If you've got five percent profit, you've got to bill another twenty thousand. You know that might reflect on the profitability of of many many practices around the world. Yes, so it's just um, I'm so thrilled with it again because I feel like if a veterinarian read this article very critically, they would see like holy cow, there's no downside to this, and this is I'm, we're not asking you to see more clients. We're asking you to think about a business model that supports you as a business with respect to compassion fatigue that's all linked and intertwined, releasing shame for veterinarians and for clients, and providing pathways for people to have other payment options than a retail pay-as-you-go. All right. Isn't this so exciting, Dave? I think it is. And that's why I was so thrilled for you to come on. And thank you for answering all of my, my questions. Because it, it is. It, it, uh, what I like about this, I like the name. The name is actually a very uh, good name, the Open Door Vet Collective, because it, it really does what it says on the tin. But it's a very, it's very holistic. It's not just something you, you bolt on and you're not just saying payment plans are an option. I love elements of this about that. You know, you run your business more effectively, more efficiently, by effectively selling, by using spectrum of care, by in every case accurately billing rather than discounting, you know, and the opportunity to be able to create some kind of internal fund linked to a payment from the client, linked to then a, a payment plan, which the vast majority of people are going to pay. It really it speaks a lot of my love languages around, you know, practices typically are very inefficient. They do not <laughs> converting sales the accuracy of billing is anywhere in my experience from 15 to 50 percent wrong in the negative when it comes to billing accuracy debt can be horribly out of whack and so there aren't these opportunities to offer this level of support and in behind you leave people behind you know i think the the counter to it is jings you know we've all got too many or many many practices have too many clients but be more discerning about clients. But honestly, like this is one of the big burnout factors in our studies, our research, and we've got a very big study we're about to publish. It's toxic client interactions and money's at the heart of a lot of those interactions. Absolutely. And unfortunately for us, you know, our compassionate work is tied to the almighty dollar, unfortunately, but that's the reality of, you know, the world, right? It is. Sarah, is there anything we've not said or covered that's important that you'd like to share as final thoughts? There's just no downside, in my opinion, honestly, but it's a different approach. I read a lot about brain psychology in my work, 
because I'm in the business of influencing people and having them release old ways of thinking, that means I've had to do that. And our brains automatically trigger to the negative and amplify the negative. This is a proven psychological fact, right? And if you did it, it, you, it was perfect. You did it. You said, but what about people who are going to take advantage of the system, right? We automatically trigger to the negative. So it's about releasing that and saying, what's going on here? Wait a minute. 45 million people are credit invisible. Wait a minute. You know, how can we create this relationship with our clients so that we're all partners and sometimes, guess what? They're going to do the MRI. They're going to do the CAT scan. But when they can't, what can we do to work together? What can we do? So I encourage everyone who's listening at minimum, read the Frontiers article, read there's a blog say, that you're going to post as well. It's just a quick summary of what the Open Door Veterinary Collective model is. Our nonprofit provides training for the whole model, or you could just get mentoring in parts of it. Hey, we just want to increase our efficiency of scheduling. So there's a whole menu of ways that that we can help. And we ourselves have some grant money to provide pro bono consults as well. Fantastic. Best place for people to get in touch with you, Sarah, if they want to find out more? Well, our website is opendoorconsults.org. My email is drpisano at opendoorconsults.org. Fantastic. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Sarah's other work in Journey in Veterinary Medicine, then it's episode 40 of Blunt Dissection. Go back and listen to it. It is an absolutely brilliant listen. Sarah, such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for evangelizing about this and being part of, you know, spreading the word on a on a different model. That's really what's exciting me at the minute are the different models of, of veterinary business or ways of thinking that are starting to emerge from the pressure cooker that we've been in and are in at the minute. So fantastic to reconnect with you and hear about the work you're doing. And Thank you. Jeez, Louise, Dave, I did forget to mention one thing. We are big, fear-free providers as well. So we also feel that's part of the model, right? So our efficiency with how we handle animals quickly and compassionately and all of that. So we are huge fear-free fans as well. I just wanted to give a shout out to fear-free. Although you didn't say it, I think that was probably coming across fairly fairly clearly for me anyway <laughs> conversation so that is fantastic great stuff well sarah crack on with this amazing work you've got a lot of work ahead of you i assume you'll be at vmx and uh, if so i look forward to seeing you there otherwise take care of yourself and thank you so much for being a guest on the show again thank you so much dave it's always a pleasure thank you Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And thank you again to the awesome Dr. Sarah Pisano. Do check out the Open Door Consults website. So it's Open Door Veterinary Collective and the website address is opendoorconsults.com where you will find lots more information about the programs, tons of links to research and lots of very good 
stuff. So I hope this episode opened your eyes and started your brain thinking about other ways of doing business. Please, if you enjoyed the episode, share it with somebody you think might enjoy the episode. And also, don't forget to take two minutes to leave us a little review on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. So from all of us here at Blunt Dissection, to all of you at home, be safe, be well, and be happy. Yeah.